Hello, and welcome to Employment Practices Solutions, Real Solutions Podcast, Uber, Fox News, and Executive Influence on Corporate Culture. Both Uber and Fox News have made lots of headlines recently, and we want to use those specific examples to provide our listeners some insight into how to influence corporate culture and specifically how to coach or train the executive who, for better or worse, influences those cultures. I'm your host, Lisa Dishman, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Amy Jacobs and Molly Holub, both licensed employment attorneys and consultants with EPS. Amy is in our Dallas-Fort Worth office, and Molly is in Houston. Amy has been with EPS for 20 years plus, and prior to joining EPS, Amy was an associate with both Bracewell and Patterson and Haynes and Boone in Fort Worth. Amy shares my Virginia roots and is a fellow Virginia Tech grad and received her law degree from the University of Virginia. Molly is celebrating five years with EPS and was an associate with Law Mills Shirley. Molly did her undergraduate work at the University of Texas and received her Juris Doctorate from Texas Tech. Welcome to you both and thank you both for joining me today. I want to begin our conversation with the two organizations that I called out in starting the podcast, Fox News and Uber. You've both recently written white papers for EPS and used Fox News and Uber respectively as the jumping off points for your articles. Amy, your article focused on Fox News, so start us off with a little bit of background on their recent executive challenges. Sure. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Molly. Uh, The Fox News harassment scandal had been percolating for many years before it exploded um, in the last six to ten months. Bill O'Reilly, for many years, was the face of Fox News, and he had previously been accused of harassment on several occasions with resulting settlements. Roger Ailes, who unfortunately is now deceased, was a larger-than-life personality who created Fox News, and it was unquestionably his company. As you know, it's not unusual to have personalities dominate a corporate culture. For example, Steve Jobs with Apple. Those, those two names go together uh, like peanut butter and jelly. But it obviously becomes problematic when one or more of those per- powerful personalities behave in a destructive manner. And in the Fox case, this was by allegedly engaging in offensive sexually-based conduct and and then, of course, disregarding the negative impact on their workplace. Ultimately, the number of complaints reached a tipping point, and as we know from the extensive news reporting that has gone on, that brought down not only Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly, but many others in leadership as well. Interestingly, one executive who was fired during the, the Fox house cleaning has now sued Fox for almost $50 million, claiming that he was scapegoated when, in fact, he contends he did nothing wrong. Uh, So lots of challenges for Fox when this situation finally reached an explosion point. To say the least, Molly, Uber's challenges were similar yet quite different. Can you fill us in on the background of their recent issues that they've encountered? Absolutely. So um, a little bit of background on the Uber situation. Really, it came to the forefront probably in February of this year when uh, a blog post surfaced from a former employee of Uber named Susan Fowler, and her blog post detailed the struggles that she encountered in her relatively short 12-month career with Uber. 
ultimately her coming forward in the blog post led to over 200 complaints made by current and former employees of Uber. Uber was put in the position of having to uh, retain outside counsel to engage in all of those investigations. And that led to 20 terminations, including several senior executives. And then 40 additional employees were reprimanded or were referred to training. So many of the complaints were based on sexual harassment or gender diversity issues. But also there were allegations just of general bullying and other matters. But as a whole, this exposed this, a corporate culture at Uber that appeared to be allowing or at least tacitly encouraging bad behavior. And as Amy highlighted so well with the Fox situation, a lot of this was directly attributed to the corporate culture that was sort of established by the Uber's founder and chief executive officer, Travis Kalanick, who really had a larger-than-life reputation within Uber and then outside of Uber as well. And among his questionable leadership tactics, he famously said in an interview, I like pissing people off. So that was just an example of, of what the corporate culture might have been like at Uber when, when all of this started, you know, coming to the forefront in February. Given those examples, it may be hard to believe that next year is the 20th anniversary of Farragher-Ellerth, which is really the legal cornerstone of anti-harassment legislation. In your article, Amy, you ponder, given Fox News' issue specifically, whether we've made progress since Farragher. But before you share your thoughts on the progress or the lack of progress, can you recap Farragher for those of us who might need a review? It's been 20 years after all. Yeah, uh, Farragher-Ellerth is actually two, that's, that's uh, shorthand for two Supreme Court cases that were decided in 1998. And while the sexual harassment cases had been litigated since really starting in the 70s, these two cases, the court really took a major step forward by establishing a specific framework for how to evaluate sexual harassment claims when they are raised against supervisors at companies. And, and that's significant because a supervisor is really an agent of the company. So anything he or she does is actually imputed back to the company. That's why supervisory harassment is so significant. Probably ought to also remind our listeners that there are two types of sexual harassment, quid pro quo and hostile environment. So Farragher-Ellers, and, and again, those were two cases decided in 98, Farragher versus City of Boca Raton, and Burlington Industries versus Ellers. So shorthand, Farragher-Ellers. Those two cases together hold that if a supervisor engages in quid pro quo harassment, meaning they come right out and tied a term or condition of employment to um, an employee's response to requests for sexual favors, the most extreme example, of course, being sleep with me or I'll fire you, then the employer of that supervisor is strictly liable for that behavior. If the behavior actually occurred and can be proven, then the question isn't whether the company is liable, but really just how many zeros are going to be on the check. Hostile environment sexual harassment, which is really the more, these days, the more prevalent type of complaint, 
and that involves pervasive and unwelcome sexually based conduct, joking, comments, looks, uh, those types of things. The court provided in Farragher-Ellis an affirmative defense for employers to use in those situations when their supervisors did those types of things. If the company can show that first it took steps to prevent harassment and then took prompt action when it learned about harassing behavior, then it could significantly reduce liability. So in other words, post-Farragher-Ellis, a company is in a much better position if it establishes a harassment prevention program for example, putting a comprehensive anti-harassment policy in place and training its workforce on that policy, if it establishes an accessible avenue for employee complaints, and then takes prompt appropriate action if and when it receives complaints, it's in a much better place. So as a result, Farragher-Ellers had and really continues to have a very significant and positive impact and incentive on employer behavior. There are so many elements, Amy, within Farragher that impact employers, and those two court decisions were really the galvanizing pieces of EPS's business in terms of providing employers avenues to prevent harassment, discrimination, and or to correct them if they've happened. I want us to focus back on executive-level leadership because the supervisor's um, our agents of the company, certainly executives are as well. Both Uber and Fox News were seriously impacted at the executive level by these kinds of issues, and I, I guess that's an understatement. Right, Molly? Right, Amy? Uh, yes, it's really difficult to establish a credible harassment prevention program if you don't have supportive leadership, and, and that goes all the way to the top. The CEO really has to be the face of the program or else, uh, you're going to have difficulties. So true. And, and maybe less public, although Uber is a great example, is the impact that these leaders have really deep within the organization. I mean, the catalyst at Uber was a female engineer who wrote a blog post. Her experience, though, is perhaps sadly more typical than we'd like to think. So, Molly, can you fill us in on the specifics of how the issues arose at Uber and how that dovetails with what you see in your work at EPS in terms of executive coaching and so forth? Make that linkage for us. Absolutely. So, as I said before, um, Susan Fowler was began working as an engineer for Uber in um, November of 2015. And according to her blog post shortly after, her manager sent her a series of inappropriate text messages, which she claimed she reported to HR pretty much immediately. And again, in her blog post, she says that HR indicated that there was nothing that they could do because her manager was a high performer and was kind of untouchable. They couldn't go after him. So Fowler made some adjustments, personal adjustments, work adjustments, and continued working at, at Uber but she also made more HR complaints. Um, it didn't deter her from trying to use HR as the appropriate avenue for her complaints. But again, according to her blog, those complaints were ignored. And so ultimately, Fowler resigned in November of 2016, after only a year, when another high-performing manager threatened to fire her, or allegedly threatened to fire her, for making reports, the, all of those reports to HR. So then after that blog post came out in February of 2017, 
and, you know, being such a, a detailed description of her work environment and the challenges she had, then it seems as though a lot of other employees felt empowered to come forward with their complaints or former employees as well. And so more than 200 complaints were raised by current and former employees at that time. So Uber was, I guess, sort of backed against the wall and and reached out to the law firm of Perkins Cole and retained them to investigate all of those allegations. And then separately, Uber retained Covington Burling LLP in Washington, in D.C., which was headed by former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. And his team came in and engaged in a comprehensive evaluation of Uber company policies as they existed at the time and what their policies and practices were and what, how they, what they resulted in. And then the report that came out was a 13-page just kind of list of recommendations in 10 distinct categories, just, you know, where does Uber go from here? So this situation is extreme, but it's not dissimilar to what I've seen with some of our clients where a company really finds itself being reactive rather than proactive um, and trying to do damage control rather than anticipating those issues and addressing them uh, with, you know, well-written and executed policies and training. So failing to take reports to HR or hotline calls seriously. That's what I unfortunately see with some of our clients at EPS is that um, initial reports or complaints are ignored or they're not taken seriously until it's almost too late. Quite literally thousands of somewhat similar investigations that have elements of the experiences that both Uber and Fox News have encountered So given that, let's shift our conversation to the really complicated issues that can arise when an organization has a really high-performing executive, even a CEO, whose business performance is outstanding, but whose behavior, like these two examples, is taking a really serious toll on the organization. You can imagine at Uber, if 200 complaints reveal themselves after Susan Fowler's blog post that the organization had a lot of conflict and certainly negative energy in the organization. So sometimes these behaviors that come from the executive level, people can tolerate for a long period of time or even worse, uh, other people in their orbit can adopt those kind of behaviors to fit in and to succeed. So Amy, give us a little bit of insight as to what, whether it's a board of directors, whether it's an HR business partner, what are the initial steps that can begun to be taken when that type of behavior uh, reveals itself? Well, it's certainly true, um, as evidenced by Uber and by Fox, that company leaders can have a significant influence, if not the only influence, on the corporate culture. And, you know, that could be limited to a single executive vice president within one department or silo in the company, or it could be, you know, from the CEO across the organization. Molly touched on this just a minute ago, but really the importance of an empowered human resources department cannot be overstated. It's just critical that HR have the ability to monitor and bring up situations that need attention. And if it's the CEO, then there needs to be some other avenue to the board to make that information known. 
What you don't want is a CEO that isolates the board from the realities of the workplace. And so, you know, some boards may have committees that do annual reviews of the types of complaints that HR is receiving or some other way to prevent them from being cut off from the realities of the workplace. It's also really important, and again, Molly touched on this too, to have a mechanism for complaints that's effective, including anonymous complaints. And sometimes we find clients um, not giving much merit to anonymous complaints, but they can really be the introduction into a world that HR may not be aware of in their company. Sometimes an anonymous complaint is going to be the only way you'll hear about um, an issue that's percolating up. And of course, as we can see with the examples we've been discussing, you want to find those issues when they're percolating before they become completely um, out of control. Another way that that can be helpful is to have a third-party exit interview process so that you have sort of a neutral party um, talking with people who are leaving. And people who are leaving often are very free with information that they might not have revealed while still employed at the company, while still looking for other employment. But that, that's a good opportunity to collect information that might, uh, might not otherwise have come to the attention of human resources as well. Amy, and that's our, such a good point. Sorry to, to interject, but uh, that's such a good point about the exit interview. And I, I have to think um, what might have happened if Susan Fowler had had an exit interview and she was able to express all of her concerns, maybe to a third party as she was leaving Uber instead of in a blog post, that Uber might have been able to get out in front of some of this in a different way. So that's a great point about the exit interview. When we embark on training initiatives often at APS, I mean, just to tag on to both of your thoughts, you know, we strongly encourage our client executives to participate in training. And organizations might consider even making that part of an executive's objective, having them to fully participate in any sensitivity or harassment training initiatives that happen within an organization, and perhaps even have the executive kick off the training with some type of statement whether it's live or via email or a recorded message that fully supports the training content, those sorts of very visible participation by executives are really important in establishing and reinforcing company culture. Molly, it has to be tricky to approach an executive about these kinds of issues, especially when the organization might objectively appear to be healthy and it's producing great results, what kind of approach makes the most sense when an organization is addressing these kinds of issues with executives? Absolutely. When, uh, when you're having to address these issues with an executive and you're talking about that individual's own behavior, it can be very challenging because, you know, on the one hand, you have a very high-performing individual in the company, and on the other hand, you have this you know, bad behavior, so to speak, that you have to address. So some of the things that have come to light in the coaching that, that I've been involved with is that you really need concrete evidence and examples of how that high-performing employee's bad behavior has negatively impacted the company and this person's coworkers. 
you might need to approach them with documented specific examples of bad behavior. And make sure to note when that behavior is a violation of the company's code of conduct or other policies and procedures. So if there's been an investigation into the employee's conduct and there are findings on this, you know, specific instances of bad behavior that are documented and supported by evidence, use those findings that come out in the investigation as a guide. And also, if you describe in clear terms the behaviors that need to change and your expectations regarding the new and improved behavior, so not only pointing out what they've done wrong in the past, but how specifically to improve that behavior moving forward. Uh, also, make sure the employee knows how dire the situation is. And a lot of the conversations that I have with clients kind of in the, at the get, from the get-go, the initial conversation, I want to know, does this person know that their job is on the line, if it is on the line? Um, because I think it's, it's really important for that person to know the, you know the consequences of his or her failure to achieve these expected changes. If the job's on the line, again, they need to know that from the get-go. And then um, what employees also need to understand, if they're being put through this coaching that it's clear that the company wants them to succeed, not only to be a high performer, but to succeed as uh, an integral part of the organization. So the company wouldn't expend the time, effort, and money on helping this person to change if they didn't add value to the company. So while you want them to know how dire the situation is, you also want them to know that they wouldn't be going through this coaching if they weren't seen as, as being valuable to the company. And then it's helpful always, you know, after maybe a, an initial coaching and training session to set up periodic check-ins with the employee to review their progress and then talk about areas that, you know, where they still needed improvement. That this isn't a one-and-done situation, that the company really wants to make sure that, that these changes stick, you know, for the, in the long run. You know, I always am an advocate of calling for backup. So, you know, scheduling this one-on-one -on -one coaching with the employee and an outside consultant who can, you know, that maybe that initial training or one-on-one -on -one coaching will kick off the training that's needed to get the employee back on track and the company back on track in which you can reiterate the points, you know, from an unbiased perspective. So some of the, some of the things that are hard for uh, a senior executive to hear from inside the company, they might be more receptive to hearing from, you know, a neutral third party or from an unbiased perspective. And, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one coaching situation, there's nothing like looking around an empty room and knowing unequivocally that the message that you're receiving is for you and for no one else. Those are good points. And Molly, you've delivered under, uh, in your tenure with EPS and, and you as well, Amy, a number, I don't know, hundreds of executive coaching counseling sessions. Molly, what type of issues have you addressed that are typical? I mean, we've touched on harassment issues. I'm sure there's a, a variety of others that may be a very common one. But what have your executive training sessions typically addressed? You're right. There, each you know situation obviously is is unique, but they can range from from extreme situations of sexual harassment, where clearly not only have you know the company policies been violated, but it definitely calls into question whether the law has been violated as well to less salacious issues where 
you know, maybe we're a situation that an, an executive is, is, is encouraging an atmosphere of, uh, or culture of gossip or backstabbing, which results kind of in a, a feeling of mistrust in the company. And so, you know, I'm sent in to sort of try and write this one employee and show them that while it doesn't seem like a, a major issue, that kind of a culture of gossip can really deteriorate the overall atmosphere of the company. So I've seen things like that, but probably the most common issues revolve around an individual executive's or, or supervisor's management style. So many of the executives I've spoken with, regardless of their gender or their cultural background, seem to believe in a motivation through fear. I have the coaching upcoming where the, where the uh, supervisor was described as being tyrannical. So these people apparently believe that they get the most work, the best work from employees who believe that basically their termination looms on the horizon you know, every day. So that's what I see most frequently is, is just talking to executives or supervisors about what really is the best way to motivate their employees and that generally it is not, you know, motivation through fear. So just if I can them. add something that's that's slightly unrelated, excuse me for interrupting, Lisa, um, but I just wanted to make note that the last two investigations that I have done have revolved around exactly what Molly just described, an executive that wasn't necessarily uh, engaging in harassment uh, or discrimination, but was just so difficult to work for. And when that happens, that can lead to people feeling like they're being harassed or discriminated against. So I, I just wanted to add in that I think we're seeing more and more of that focus on the management style and trying to help executives work through what's really the best way to get the most out of your employees. Given the nature uh, of these types of issues that you both have alluded to, I could envision uh, an executive coming to a coaching session, a training session, who might be in deep denial or take the posture, have you seen the record-breaking quarterly results and push back or not be in the right frame of mind to really be receptive? These are tricky situations. So, Amy, just to tag on to that, having experienced it directly with two investigations, how receptive are executives typically to this type of coaching? I can imagine it varies for certain, but what has been your experience once the executive has been informed and gone through some of the processes that Molly uh, indicated? When they get to training, what's your experience with them in terms of their receptivity? Well, it's, it's definitely true that the reception to coaching can be heavily influenced by a couple of things. Molly so eloquently described how to give the message to that executive concerning the importance of the training. And, and that's really important, the messaging and the messenger. Who delivers this requirement to the executive and how clear he or she is about both the executive's value and the expectations for um, their level of engagement in the coaching. Um, so that's something that shouldn't be, you know, considered lightly. When, it, when the company makes a decision, you know, we're going to try to correct this. Uh, this executive is extremely valuable to us, and we believe in them, and we think we want to give them a chance to, to get back on track. 
it's important to think hard about who delivers that message. It needs to be somebody that executive trusts, somebody that executive respects, um, and somebody that executive sees as having, you know, frankly, enough power uh, to make a difference in his or her future with the company. Also, the choice of coach is important. You've alluded to this already. It's not uncommon for an executive to, sh- to appear for a one-on-one coaching session with the idea that they're going to just be lectured for an hour or two about what they can and can't do in the workplace. And, of course, a- an effective coach won't do that, but instead will work, and-, and this foundation is important, will work to establish a collaborative relationship with the executive will spend time at the outset of the coaching explaining the purpose of the training, why it's important, what it's going to consist of, the goals of the coaching, and really establish trust with that executive. Then once that's in place, uh, it's much easier to use methods to make clear to that employee the importance, you know, both from a legal perspective as far as liability to the company and to the individual, but from an economic perspective, I mean, you know, companies are about productivity, and a happy workforce is a productive workforce. So it's important to make sure that executive executive understands that any disruptive behavior that they're bringing to bear on uh, the employee population might present economic uh, disadvantages as well as legal disadvantages. So. Um, uh, those are some important things that a coach can do to help make that coaching more receptive to the individual executive. So let's presume we've had an executive who has been trained, they're receptive, they're open to growth, to change. What about the rest of the organization? If an executive is being coached on these behaviors, there's probably been some cultural repairing that needs to be done within the organization in the aftermath of addressing issues within leadership. Molly, do you have any suggestions how to uh, begin to reshape the corporate culture in the aftermath of this type of situation? Absolutely. In a situation where the corporate culture has been sort of adopted or set for a period of time and it's really just saturated so to speak, the organization, you know, coaching of the at the executive level is key and very important, but it, you know, really needs to be followed up with training among the organization as a whole. So depending on the severity of the situation, a company may be looking at changes in senior management, you know, those who just cannot be retrained or or coached out of a situation, but also improvements and changes to human resources. As Amy and I both talked about previously, it's so important to have an autonomous um, and powerful human resources department so that, you know, complaints, the complaint process is actually effective. And along with that, changes to company policies if they're necessary. If you have policies in place that you've just seen do not work, you know, looking at changing those company policy or revising those policies, um, and maybe the company culture as well, the mission statement, the code of conduct, things like that might need to be looked at. And then finally, training, which is really key. It's the most, it's probably the most important component to all of this, because once you make these changes, 
your organization needs to understand how to implement those. So training absolutely is key. And the most effective training is multifaceted. So you've got leadership training. And then beyond that, you know, HR trainings. So they do understand how important it is for to remain separate from the organization and how important it is, as Amy highlighted, legally it's so important to thoroughly and promptly investigate, but also it's important that employees trust the process. Training on that level um, and then uh, training on the lower level management level, maybe those lower level managers have, have seen the higher level executives succeed using these tactics or this management style that's really not appropriate and doesn't fit with the new company policies or the new improved company culture. So that lower level management really needs to understand that there's been a shift and a change and, and how to effectively implement those changes. And then beyond that, in some cases, you could even, you know, go into interview training because interviews, you know, and properly interviewing candidates and potential employees, if you've done the right way, that sets the tone for a new employee's experience in the workplace and what they can expect as a new employee. So that's kind of the final component to a really comprehensive training package, so to speak. Those are all terrific suggestions. Molly, Amy, anything to add there? Are there things other than training that organizations might consider um, as they're thinking about a cultural shift or are forced into a significant cultural shift around harassment and these types of issues? Well, I think it's important to to remember that harassment, whether it's and discrimination, whether it's sexual, racial, or based on some other protected category, really highlights and then denigrates individual differences. So respectful workplace training, as Molly just described, is an effective way of highlighting commonalities among employees, but also educating the workforce on the value of diversity. Some other techniques, you know, may, uh, that, that could be helpful would focus more on, on the work and on production. One method might be, you know, focusing on that might be to regularly recognize individuals or departments for work-related achievements. Other companies also, you know, make an effort to organize team-building activities. So something that's more fun and something employees might look forward to more than than, um, training, for example. Just ways of, of trying to really help move that culture shift in the right direction. Terrific. We'll end it on that positive note. Thank you again, Amy and Molly, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. You can read both Amy and Molly's articles and learn more about EPS and our services at our website, epspros.com. That's epspros.com. You can listen to this podcast and share it with others on both SoundCloud and in iTunes. You can also find us on LinkedIn, on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. We'd love to hear your feedback and better understand the employment practices challenges you face as an HR or employment law professional, and we hope you'll join us on upcoming podcasts. Thanks again.